Yeah. We, we are the epitome of black female love. Yeah. Easy for us as, as black women to, to hold up the banner and the call for everyone else. But again, Who's, who holds up the banner and the calls for That we as a black church are perpetuating the mm -hmm. same behavior as a patriarchal evangelicals have That's been doing. Hello, my sisters. Hello, hello. How are you all today? Hello, well, hello. wonderfully well. Fabulous. You? fabulous. Especially <laughs> since the heat has died down. It's cooling off a little bit. It, it was. Because what? What? Oh, it's been beautiful here. It's been beautiful here. Absolutely beautiful. I mean, no, no, we, no, we can use a few, we can use a few more days of, of nice 75, 82 degree weather. Now she wasn't hollering because she in DC, but when she was in Dallas, she wasn't hollering at. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, we, we got this voice from someone we can't see. Let me let me handle that one right now. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I love I I like the warm weather. I do too. I'm a Floridian. It can stay warm for me. I like warm, but I don't like so hot that you just don't. I mean, even when we were in Africa, it wasn't this hot. There it was it was a, a nice hot. There was uh some type of moisture in the air and it wasn't so bad. But okay, I'm, I, don't, I don't know what part of Africa you were in. All right, then our viewing audience, our viewing audience, thank you for being with us. Let us know that you are here. Sharon Mitchell, all the way from Michigan, thank you so very much. Cameron Horry, thank you uh, for being with us. Ah, Minister Bob Bell, it's good to see you. I'm here with us and Yvonne Williams. Yvonne Williams, come on, come on, come on in, come on in. Um, like and tag, tag someone in. I'm telling you, you all will not want to miss the discussion. Um, that we will have today with our guest. So you all, let me um, ask you, there have been um, a lot, we know uh, what's happened in, in Gaza and with Israel and and um, the kind of attack that happened on, on civilians. Um, I don't know if there's a way we can ever justify that, but I really wanna kind of hit real quickly on this um, on this Israel part, and and I know I'm gonna hit some fundamentalists, and even though I'm usually labeled as a fundamentalist, but um, on this 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 Israel being the sacred people of God in the midst of this, and then and people who've never been to Israel, I am one who had an opportunity to travel to Israel, um, not understanding what is happening to the Palestinians. Who are primarily Christian? Okay, right. most people miss that part. Mm -hmm. That that the group that has been demonized um, are Christians. They many of them might be might be of Arab descent mm -hmm. um, in regard to race, but not religion. Wow. And um, and so, but I kind of want to hear. Um, you know, um, I listened to the president today in his address and, and the others, because, again, I, I, I want to be clear in saying that the attack on innocent lives on civilians um, is that that is absolutely horrible. But but I like to kind of hear a little bit, you know, you all thoughts on this question. Um, I think Israel does the same thing as Russia to Ukraine. Mm. That's, that's my that's my take. Um, mm. it bothers me that folk want, want to occupy land that someone else occupies from Christopher Columbus and every other colonizer. Um, so I, it just, um, that's what kind of 
rocks my boat. I I, I am empathetic with uh, the Palestinians. I am also empathetic that the innocent lives were um, people were killed. That 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 bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, people that want to say because they are a chosen people mm-hmm. um, that they are entitled to what belongs to someone else mm-hmm. bothers me. That bothers me. But that's been the that's been the the the, the jargon all along. You know, when they came to America, they that was the mindset, um, you know, telling the Indians that we were going to they were going to move them one place for uh, all these so-called amenities to take them and slaughter. Them. And it, it's really sad. But I, I'm, a, I'm just going to be real, real transparent that watching that building that was bombed and that building going down, it 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 really just impacted me uh i i don't know where you guys were when 9-11 happened Mm. and um you know seeing i turned the tv on right when the last plane went in and hit the other side of the the twin towers and Mm -hmm. i was just speechless Mm -hmm. there's really no word to, to, to just describe how it makes you feel the other part of that, uh, my sisters, is that what drove the Palestinians to need or, or think that they needed to retaliate in the way that they did? We, we often talk about the end result, but we don't talk about what caused that um, horrific frustration that people knew no other way but to retaliate in the way they did. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for that as well, Wallace. Um, um, when when I had an opportunity to go uh, to Israel, and I want to say it was um, somewhere, I want to say it was around somewhere between 05 and 07. I don't, I might be 06. I don't remember the dates exactly. I know though that um, when I came back, I read, um, uh, former President Jimmy Carter's book um, soon after that return, because what I had been, what I, how I had perceived Israel from CNN, right, um, at that time, because at that point, CNN was the major international news network. Um, I realized that when I got to Israel that I had been lied to. And, um, and, and so um, this and it it wasn't until I, I got there and to hear and to see um, the stories of the Palestinians to see the intentionality of um, of of separating people the the walls that are put out you know um, how they can get food um, inside of the areas that the beautiful city of Bethlehem being one of those places of tourist sites um, but but the but how food spoils. Mm. Um, how the Israel government would allow food to spoil before getting to the people around medical care, all the things of basic necessities. And so now only being able to see it from American news, mm. um, I'm, I, it, having had the experience of having been there, right? It, it, I, there, there's some questions that come up for me. And then the other part for me in regard to the biblical aspect of it, is that people consistently equate um, what we like to call the, the Hebrews of the Bible with those who are occupying Israel right now, right? And, and those are not the same people. It's not the same bloodline. It's not those same things. And so, um, and, and for, for me being one of those end time, I've, I've, I've always been unapologetic about being an end time, per, end time scripture and all those things. But when we talk about when we look when we look at those apocryphal scriptures and talk about those things, that that the people the true Israelites have to be pulled in from across the world because they have been they have been dispersed. They are in the diaspora. They That's right. They, they, That's right. Right. And so those those who are occupying Israel, right? And so we keep talking about save Israel, save Israel. Now this is not to say that there's not some remnant within Israel. It's not to say that. 
But what we what we have habitually been fed, mm-hmm. right, as those who are Israelites, mm-hmm. um, those of us with the with this with the that Christian mindset that we we made an equation. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same. And and I really hope I saw someone who posted it who said pray for Israel, but then I saw them say and Palestine. Mm-hmm. Because if we're not careful, especially as people of color, we will buy into a, a, a mainstream narrative that really works against who we are um in um as a people, um as a race, and and ignore um and and be unable to see the, the atrocities that are happening. Um, that that are that are equal that are happening um, both at home and abroad. But yeah, amen, okay. amen, amen, yeah. amen, yeah. amen. It just um, and these are Europeans that have aligned themselves with Israelites. Um, I don't know. If one one week we talked about the book Hebrews to Negroes or Negroes to Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Hebrews to Negroes. And um, how the researcher had traced DNA across the world. Yeah. That yeah. They they're they, dispersed. They were not they are not just yeah. in Israel. Right. Um, no, no, they're 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 part of the just yeah. Yeah. And so in those of those who are like me, who part of the end time prophecy and those things, they have they they're gonna be pulled in from across from across the world. And um and but all right, well goodness, well that's a whole nother conversation. We we we'll have an opportunity perhaps for next week to, to also discuss this. Dr. Bradford has made it in. I want to introduce our guest. I'm telling y'all, those of you who are viewing and listening, continue to let us know um that you're here. I'm telling you all, you don't want to miss this guest that um, we have um, with us on today. Um, Reverend uh, Christy Lauren Adams is an author, a speaker, um, black girlhood advocate. Uh, She's the author of Parable of the Brown Girl, Unbiased, um, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way, and its middle grade version, Black Girls Unbiased. She's also just released a new book, and I hope to, that um, she'll mention that um, as well uh, to us on today. Um, she has received awards for the best young adult book from the African American Literary Awards and the New York Black Librarians Caucus. Um, Unbossed was a 2023 runner up for the Los Angeles Book Festival and a 2023 finalist for the International Book Awards in the social change category. Black Girls Unbossed was a um, forward Indies Book of the Year um, award in the juvenile notification category. Her next book, Womanist Theology, Discovering God Through the Lens of Black Girlhood, um, has been released, I believe. And um, and so we're excited um, about hearing about that as well. She works as a Dean of Spiritual Life and Equity at the Hill School and is an instructor of religious studies. She's a graduate of Temple um, University and Princeton Theological Seminary, where she obtained a Master of Divinity degree. She's a 2017 graduate of Lead New Jersey, a select group of thought leaders from the public, social, and private sectors of New Jersey, and the surrounding communities. She also currently serves as a mentor for the Garden Initiative for Black Women's Religious Activism, a nine-month peer-to-peer and intergenerational mentorship program for Black women leaders across religious traditions in the United States. Her mission is lived out uh, through the words of, I write for young girls of color, for girls who don't even exist yet, so that there is something there for them when they arrive. I can only change how they live, not how they think. Audience, will you um, welcome our guest on today, Reverend Christy Adams. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for that. My book is not out yet. The new one is Uh, next summer. I just literally pressed send on the first draft of the manuscript on Sunday night. That's still that's still a celebration for me. Yes, 
it's nowhere near uh, near being finished. <laughs> Welcome um, with us on today. Um, um, so um, tell us um, first, um, just tell us first, how are you? I know that if you just hit sin, that you got a whole lot of pressure um, yeah. off of your shoulders before we jump into our questions. And we have some questions um, for you on today. Um, how are you? Well, thanks for having me. Um, again, I, I, we could have, there could be a whole podcast on just the book writing journey, <laughs> you know, um, it could just be a whole episode in and of itself. Cause there's just so much you learn about yourself and, um, there's just, there's never, it's never the same process. doesn't matter how many books you write. You know, it doesn't get any easier. I mean, maybe for some people it gets easier, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I wouldn't say that. So, um, hitting send on that is is always a big like weight off, you know, off my shoulders. But um, it's always an emotional like. I don't think I've hit send on any of the last like two first drafts manuscripts and not like almost wanted to cry, you mm -hmm. know, cause you're just like, you're releasing something that you've just been holding. Doesn't matter how much I've relaxed this summer or not relaxed or when I'm at work, it's just always in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it just felt good to, to send that. So mm -hmm. I, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm in the, you know, I'm in the beginning of the school year. Um, here I work at a boarding school. So um, to hit send and still be working here at the same time is always <laughs> another another major accomplishment. So when you say um, a boarding school, that takes me back, uh, yeah. to, like to the Western days where they used to send the kids off to the, the girls off to the boarding school. Kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, they send, I, they send their kids there to live. Yeah. So think of what you just said, but fast forward to 2023, right? Like it's wow. it's an it's an upgraded, um, you know, it's not the way it was 20, 30 years ago where you, where you drop your kid off and you don't see them again till Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, they're dropping their kids off. Um, they're very present, almost too present sometimes, you know, like, wow. because, you know, um, it's just, a, it's just a different, it's just a different generation, right? Um, mm -hmm. they, they, the, the parents, the families, the guardians, they, they realize the, um, the, the importance of, you know, um, why they're sending their, their children here, but at the same time, it's not just to shuffle them off and then disappear. So they're still very active and engaged. And a lot of the parents, honestly, uh, some of them move closer, uh, particularly our international students or even parents who are from the West coast, you know, they'll get an apartment, you know, 20 minutes away, half hour away, um, really, they they stay present the way. That's why I said fast forwarded to 2023, and how you know it's it's more upgraded. And then there's a good number of them that live nearby. You know, they're either day students or they um, board. Sorry, it's my dog over here. That's that's who you heard earlier. Um, they're either day students or they they board. And it's just it's only when I get on this that she, you know, she's been quiet all day like a child yeah baby, please <laughs> wow that's interesting with you on, on today okay. um before we jump into to your book um i do want you to see a comment that one of our um, viewers has put on here um and just popped on the author from a book i just started reading yesterday and wants to know if they'll get spark notes or clip notes versions here today. Um, just want to throw that in. I thought that's kind of humorous uh, from that view. <laughs> okay. okay. So we, before we jump into your book on uh, today, um, you you are ordained an ordained Baptist minister, correct? Yeah. And so and so, tell us about that journey to becoming an ordained Baptist preacher. I know, right? I, well. <laughs> The new book, Womanish Theology, which is interesting. I do a lot of reflecting um, on my child, my, my adolescence, my teenage years. And 
how I came to the faith, how I was introduced and um, how, you know, theological principles and um, how my values were shaped and formed. And a lot of those started there, you know? Um, so I, I usually say that my journey to ordination, you know, it wasn't an overnight. It started with my grandmother, you know what I mean? Um, teaching me scripture, my, my, my parents teaching me the Lord's prayer, my mom and dad were deacon and deaconess uh, in the church, um, in the black church, black Baptist church growing up. Um, my pastor and mentor at the time, Pastor Sores, he was, um, you know, very uh, instrumental in, and influential in my life. And so um, just being a part of, of that, uh, of, a, of a church community that I considered my church family, um, it really had a lot to do with just shaping my pers who I am, but also my perspective of, of ministry. I didn't want to be ordained anything. You know, I always wanted to go into ministry of some sort, um, but never, for I used to say never formal ministry, right? I always wanted to do what I thought was grassroots ministry, community development, things that I, I was used to seeing growing up because that's what our church had at the time. Um, and it wasn't, and even when I went to seminary, it wasn't because I wanted to be ordained. I was still, you know, sort of kicking and screaming, even though I feel like I heard, you know, the call of God to, to go, but it was like, all right, I'll go, but I'm not going to be reverend anything. You know, you, the, the whole thing that you do with the Lord, right? Where you're like, I'll do it. And then you put these stipulations on it as though you have any, any sort of control just to exert your free will. And that's exactly what I did when I went to seminary. I think I was like, oh, I'll teach or I don't know. I was just making some stuff up. You know, I didn't know exactly what that path was going to be. And um, when I when I graduated, I went back to my church and worked as a director of youth ministries. And but I had been trained, you know, in seminary and um, it was in me from, you know, from a child and, and instilled in me from all my mentors. And it was just inevitable. <laughs> you know, it was just, it really was more about me saying yes. Um, and uh, somewhere along the line of, you know, going back and working for my church, um, I got licensed, you know, and was like, okay, fine, you know, I'll be licensed, you know, and felt like um, had a, a natural gifting for speaking and preaching. And um, I just, I, I needed to understand. I think it's more about me at that point, you know, it's like the calling was there, mm -hmm. um, but the journey was mine to accept it and to discover it. And thank God for grace and patience. You know, God had a lot of patience with me um, in, in me just finding my way home, right. Finding my way back to what he'd already called me to, uh, from the beginning. So, um, you know, I, I'm not a Baptist church, you know, historian or expert, but it's very much in my veins, um, and in my blood. And, uh, so it just was the, the, the next step. But I, but on top of that, I will say in closing, I got ordained one week before I moved to, I moved to California to do college ministry back in 2011. And right when I finally had that ordination, that ordination service was my goodbye party. At the same time, wow. it was like, I went through this journey, this journey, and then I was being sent off not to a Baptist church, right? Yeah. Like not to anything, uh, to, to, to pretty much everything that I may have thought of a few years prior when I said, I want to do something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I went off to, but the path wasn't to go there right away, right? The path was to uh, follow what it is and the, the steps that God had ordered for me um, within my own church home and my own upbringing and community. And then I, I left literally seven days after. So. Mm -hmm. Wow. 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 Mm -hmm. We have um, Dr. Wallace's uh, Baptist, uh, ordained Baptist. Dr. Um, Dr. Bradford started um, with the Baptist. And so I saw as you were speaking, they were just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we know that story. We know, know that story. <laughs> 
Yeah, they were taught that women were not supposed to be, at least I was taught. That same year. Women were not called to ministry or to be pastors or preachers or so. Um, yeah. and I, I believe the, the hype and the lie for a long, long, long time. Until I didn't. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just Vern said, said it already, but I went to my pastor and I shared and he, um, no, we don't call women here. Mm -hmm. No, no problem. But he was I, right. He was right. We don't call women. God he, called you. Yeah. <laughs> the terminology, of course, yeah, you know. Yeah. I said, okay, no worries. And I sat for two years. No problem. And I, that was honestly full transparency. I was relieved. Yeah. I said, like, oh, okay, I'm off the hook. <laughs> so you thought. Some of that same foolishness yet continues. You know, yeah, there's no, but you know, here's the thing. I understand all of that. I'm fine with that. But there was a, a, a two year waiting period mm -hmm. that I had to come to grips with what God was doing. So, um, Dr. Christie, thank you for what, what you said. So it, it just brought back a lot of memories. Um, that was 30 years ago and brought back a lot of memories. So thank you. Wow. So um, before you jump to this, um, <laughs> I, I write about this, but I've said this quite often that it wasn't really, I was, I was blessed because there are many uh, women in, you know, my, uh, that I, that I grew up with colleagues who have very similar stories, right? Like, it's not like, oh, that was back then. It's still happening now, right? Oh, with, yeah. with churches. And, and so I was blessed because I feel like I was shielded um, because there were always women in the pulpit for growing up, even in the midst of there being some sort of traditional patriarchal, um, you know, thoughts of some of the leadership, not my pastor, right? And so we had a woman executive pastor and other mm -hmm. women, you know, wow. and I remember Reverend Johnson, um, uh, one of our, our executive pastor at the time, this was like in the... I don't know, this is the early 90s, and we were singing a hymn, and she replaced the pronoun he in the hymn for she. And yeah. I, I was just a kid, and I remember we were holding the hymn. I was holding, everybody was holding the hymnals, right? And you could see people looking around, right? And I was just a little girl, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, she, you know, and I wasn't even really feminist then or anything like that, you know, like I wasn't womanist. I was, I, I didn't know. I just thought it was funny, but to have that as a memory, to have that even as an example, yeah. like resistance, even though she was up there in the pulpit, mm -hmm. it was still sort of resistance. And those were my stories growing up. It really wasn't until I got to seminary and I uh, was like, oh, wait, you know, we would go guest preach places and all the men would run to the front and, you know, all that. And I, that was, I was like, oh, I didn't realize that it wasn't normal. It was a thing, right? Yeah. Wow, that's that's good though. Yeah. But as a little girl, you were a womanist because yeah. when you when you heard the, the pronoun change, you said <laughs> it was already there. It's already there, already in you, honey. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, I really want I want us to get into your this book, um, Parable um, of the Brown Girl. And so I'm going to ask you uh, to kind of put a couple of questions in there for you to, to kind of pull out, you know, yeah. how did you decide on the name Parable of the Brown Girl and how long have you been working with young women of color? Parable of the Brown Girl, you know, I don't remember the, the exact moment that I thought um, of that title. It was sort of a brainstorming thing. It was just, you know, how like uh, something will sit, there's some things that'll just come to you naturally. And then there's some things that you just sit on for a while. Mm. And then you're like, oh, and that was one of those moments that I had. I remember um, reading the gospels as many times as I, I have and, and seeing, you know, the little chapter title headings, you know, parable of the this or whatever. And um, one day I just thought, wow, what if one of these uh, were about a, a black girl, you know? Um, and that was really how that came about. But even then I wasn't like parable of the brown girl, you know, I just, I actually just had the thought, what if one of these girls was in the scripture, you know, we're all in the gospels. Um, and there are so many other stories of encounters with Jesus that we haven't read. And so that was one of the thoughts that I had, 
while that was happening, I was working with, um, I was working at a, as a, a pastoral counselor at a Christian counseling center called, named Christian Wellness Center um, and counseling a lot of, a lot of moms and dads are bringing their, their teenagers or their nine-year-old, 10-year-old girls. Um, and I would get all the girls for some reason. I was working with girls before then, you know, honestly, what I write in parable in the intro, when I graduated from college, I went and worked at a residential treatment facility for a few months. And I worked on a unit uh, called Women in Need of Guidance and Support. And they were 13 to 18 and they were all black girls. Um, and I would say that that was when the ministry for me, for black girlhood started in that facility. I was 21. Mm -hmm. And um, again, another one of those, you don't, you know, this is a significant moment, but you just, you know, I wasn't able to really articulate it till later. Mm -hmm. And I just had, have always had a heart for black girls, particularly since I worked and I have worked in predominantly white spaces mm -hmm. education wise. And so, you know, the black girls, um, I'm typically in a role that's visible and I just feel a responsibility to the black girls on campus. I'm always even here opening up my home or mm -hmm. whatever. I, I taught vacation, you know, Bible school uh, and churches and, and would always have classes for girls. You know, these are things that I was always just passionate about, but, but mm -hmm. didn't say, oh, this is my ministry. It was always like, this is just what I do. Mm -hmm. This is just is who I am, and I see myself in these girls. So I feel like I was just giving back. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until maybe I would say 2017, by maybe a year before um, I got the contract to write Parable, the Brown Girl, that I packaged it and was like, "Oh, this is a ministry, right? This is something that's consistent in my life." And this, I, I need to pay attention to this consistency. So, um, so that's what happened with, you know, um, it's, it's always been a thing for me working with black girls. It's just, I put a name to it um, and has, have been able to articulate it. So fast forward to when uh, I was working at that, at that um, counseling center and, you know, I would have these encounters, some of the girls I wrote about in the book, you know, that I've had conversations with these girls. And then I would, I remember driving home one night and, you know, just sort of locking up and, and getting in the car and it was night and I was at a light. And I remember saying to myself, if I ever get a platform, God, if you ever give me an opportunity, a platform to share their stories, you know, because these are like, these are significant moments I'm having with these girls one-on-one. -on -one. No audience, no pretense, no script, mm -hmm. you know, nobody's here to see. We're just sharing and they're blessing me as much as I feel like they're coming to me for whatever it is. And I was like, somebody, I feel, I felt really full, like more full than even when I left a, a Sunday morning service. Mm -hmm. Like I, I would feel really full driving home. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I want other people to experience this. And that was the start of it, but I never was like, oh, I'm gonna write a book. Like it, that never crossed my mind. And so when I, I, I thought, well, that's when the Becoming Conference came about, the, when I, I started that, that I haven't done that in a, in a while, but I did this sort of one day conference for, for, for black and brown girls and centering black girls. Mm -hmm. um, that was really when that started. And I thought that was the platform. Mm -hmm. And that's it- Yes. I, I don't want to slide by no, this. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> because what you just said was that you open your house to the girl, black girls on campus. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'd like to know how that's viewed by the non-melanated population. Oh, all right. I'll say that. I'm going to do that. That's a, okay. Yes. Where am I? No, just kidding. All right. Yeah. Let me forget what I was saying before. Like, um, yeah. I hate to be rude. I kind of don't care how it's viewed. I, that's you know? what I was trying to hear. That's exactly I, what I, I wanted to hear. I actually never thought about that. Yeah. It never, it never I, you know, it's a good question because I it's never crossed it. my mind what they think about that. I love it. You know, I feel like, and this goes back to, I guess, the original answer, right? Of like, black girls are just never centered. And as soon as we center them or center ourselves, well, 
then it's a whole question. And that's my nerve, you know. Um, nobody is, you know, when you guys have your little whatevers, you know, oh. centered around whatever, what, what your race or whatever that might be. But nobody questions that. Mm -hmm. Only question when black girls want to take center stage. That's why I wanted to ask. And that annoys me, you know. So they might be talking. Talk away, you know, like. This is we call it black girls gather, you know, when they come over, that's been happening. I've been here since my sixth year doing it. And, um, you know, it's not a program. It's not, you know, anything that's on the official list. It's not a club for the school. It's nothing. It's it's just me inviting them. Hey, come on over the new ones, the old older ones. And, um, you know, I, I don't even uh, I'm, I'm not. You know, I learned from my first year of becoming conference <clears throat> not to overprogram mm. uh, for especially teenagers um, and girls, particularly black girls in particular. You know, because the 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 points of the day when we had our conference, when it felt like they had the most joy, was on break. Mm -hmm. Wow! You know, it was always when they were just hanging out with each other and having mm -hmm. lunch, and mm -hmm. I'm like, they just want to exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They just want to be in a space where ain't nobody, you know, picking in their hair, mm -hmm. or, you know, Ooh. talking about, you know, why, why did your skin that dark? Or, like, they just want to just exhale. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I'll have, you know, in the future, I was like, maybe I'll have one speaker, mm -hmm. you know, but instead of having a half hour lunch break, they had an hour and a half lunch break the next year because mm -hmm. I just wanted them to have a good time. You know, mm -hmm. so I feel very protective, you know, I it, and I know there's other questions. This goes back into what you were just asking me. Right. My when I pitched Parable, the brown girl, fast forwarding, because there's much more to it. I an editor approached me about um, writing. And so I was like, oh, this might be, you know, I've never thought about writing a book. This is an opportunity to write a book. Great. You know, and um, it took me a while to come to. And that's where Parable, the brown girl. And I pitched that. And then the team got back to me and said, you know, we feel like the demographic is narrow, right? Like we would love for you to write about black girls, but write about basically like all girls. And I say this anytime I'm interviewing, because my first response was, Did you know all girls ma matter me? Like when I'm saying black girls matter, you know? And um, so I wound up not using that company and going with another company, but I was wow. So after that, because I was like, number one, y'all approach me. Come that on now. Come on. You know, um, and so, and then number two, I thought about it for a second, and I'm like, no, they should not have to share. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. this is not, oh, they're going to be in, there's seven chapters, and then I'll write about a Black girl in chapter two and five. They're always asked to share, you know? Mm. They're always asked to step to the side and consider others mm -hmm. and all that. It's never them. Mm -hmm. So, I'm like, no. And I almost, it, people are like, oh, how come you didn't call Parable the Black Girl? And part of that is like just the aesthetic, you know, the way things are written in the in the gospels are usually pretty descriptive, the woman with the issue of blood and all that. So I felt like if somebody saw one of these girls or different shades of brown, it would be Parable the Brown Girl. So that's sort of how that came about. But I answered like a million ways what you just asked me. I'm sorry, I just get so angry. I, I wanna ask a question. One of the things you just talked about was they don't want to be in a place where that somebody's touching their hair. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. was powerful. So that no, thank you for answering it the way you answered it. Thank mm -hmm. you. And and as and as Wallace gets ready to ask a question, yeah. can you can I want to put it in the chat so people now as they're listening, going like, oh, how do I find this book? Um, where, where is it that oh, they audible? Yeah. It, I did do the the, yes. the voice recording for that. Yes, you did. It's on, uh, Amazon. Um, it's on Barnes and Noble. You can actually go to your local Barnes and Noble. It should be there. I've 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 gone to a few Barnes and Nobles, and and that and Unbossed is there. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty it's pretty available. So you know, you, if all else fails, you can type it into Google, and um, different sites will come up that are selling it. Well, my question, you talked about the having a space for the girls. 
And you also talk about in your book how a lot of the uh, girls that you counsel come to you angry because of circumstances. Yeah. So, uh, and they are, you know, rightfully angry. Um, my uh, question is about how do we educate the grown-ups to not look at these girls as something wrong with them, but to look at them as what happened to them and not um, stereotype them as bad, as fast, as angry, uh, you know, all of those uh, descriptors that they are human beings, that we tend not to see them as human beings. We see their behavior first, but we don't recognize what got them to that behavior. The, the young girl that you talk about, that her mother was so inebriated and had to go I mean, come back and get the child, and the child was already in the car. You know, these girls have gone through some horrific circumstances. Wow! So tell me, what you how how do you get the message across? The I think you you got the brown girls. You, you they they know you love them. They they you got them. My issue is with the grownups, with yeah. <laughs> that that tried to pigeonhole. Um, our girls in, in ways that they don't pigeonhole uh, others. Yeah. I mean, Black women, I'll start with Black women, because I think we're more, I mean, we're Black women, right? Like, I think we are more susceptible to understanding that empathy just based off of what we deal with in society, right? Um, you know, the it, the, the book that I'm writing, Womanish Theology, is just a baby womanist theology, right? It's the theology of Black girlhood. Um, and a lot of what I've written is, you know, Black women have, Black women experience it because we experienced it when we were younger too. Mm -hmm. um, black women can empathize with Black girls because we know we've been there. You know, so it, it's it's even though I would say that it's not to say that that black women don't necessarily like fall into that, like, oh, you're bad or you're fast or whatever. I think it's a little bit easier for us to hear message, you know, to to sort of self-correct um, just by nature of the fact that we're labeled angry black woman, you know. Um, so I think that we get that. I think it's everybody else, too that is a big concern for me. Um, you know, our society in general is just socialized and conditioned to look at black boys and black girls as bad, you know? Um, we go back to the, the, the doll experiment, Kenneth and Mamie Clark, and um, you know, is this, is this white doll good and the black doll is bad? And so, I mean, a lot of this is social conditioning that we, need to address and one of the <coughs> counter it is by i mean we, we almost we need to sort of aggressively counter aggressively advocate and intervene for our kids boys and girls it's it's sort of up to us you know it's up to the to the village and to um you know it's 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 hard to change people's minds in general but one of the things that i try to do is I'm extreme with my language when I'm talking about black girls. You know, I'm just using this little example. I spoke last weekend at uh, Mount Lebanon Baptist in Brooklyn and a little black girl came up to me and she said, um, you know, I got 4C hair and, you know, I was wondering, you know, if you can just give me some advice on how to deal with it. And I said, well, first, let's talk about your language around your hair. Right. How to deal with it. Um, it's net. It's negative. You know, I'm like. So even though I'm using her as an example, um, we, adults are like, you know, it's like they just naturally, when we are referencing black girls, we just naturally go to the negative, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and naturally assume like the girl that I wrote about in the book that she's cussing folks out. So we're just gonna focus on, on that. Right. We have to really, I mean, we have to, 
it's there's no one formula for it. But as far as countering a lot of this negativity, we almost have to be extreme in how we counter it, right? It seems little to her to say, well, how do I deal with my hair? But I'm like, we're first and foremost, how you even talk about your hair. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're, let's start there with sort of reversing that, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, for me, lastly, I'll say like even on this campus, you know, when it comes to the, the, the black girls and my advocacy of them and part of my advocacy is teaching others too, right? Like mm -hmm. how, how I center and how I advocate for them is a teachable moment for them as well. Mm -hmm. So when we had COVID, when there was COVID and we were sort of in this bubble on this campus um, the following year and um, they, they, the kids were going to prom, they were preparing for them to go, but they couldn't go off campus like they normally do to go get nails done, hair done, mm -hmm. things like that. And they bought people on campus to, to bring dresses and bring whatever. Well, they had a hairstylist and I said, well, do you have anybody for the black girls? You know, mm -hmm. and they were like, well, what do you mean? Do you have somebody that knows how to do braids? Do you have somebody wow. that knows how to do a sew-in? And it was like emails, like back and forth. And the girls were like, that's okay. We'll just, no, it's not okay. It's not okay. Mm -hmm. Right? Like they were like, we'll just figure it out. We'll just do our own hair. No, if they can be prioritized, you can be prioritized. I don't care if there's three of you on this campus. Talk, sis. Um, and, but it was so, it felt extreme on my end, mm -hmm. but it has to be <laughs> because mm -hmm. of just how much they're up against and how you mm -hmm. have to literally like change people's, the way that they think in order to do that, it can't just be a, well, you know, maybe you should, you know, it can't mm -hmm. be that way. We're literally having to literally change minds. And the only way to do that is to be extreme and is to say, no, we're going to find a braider and we're going to find somebody that knows how to do stuff for black girls. And I don't care that there are six of them on the six seniors and there mm -hmm. might be a hundred white girls. Well, then for the six black seniors, you're going to bring somebody on campus mm -hmm. and we're going to cater to the, these girls as much as you do mm -hmm. everyone else. Stop mm -hmm. lumping them in to the, into the all. And Ever since then, we ain't had no problems. Now, granted, we haven't had, you know, but they're always like, Christy, is there anything I can, you know, like they're just always making sure. But that mm. was that was a teachable moment for them. Now they know, you know, not don't mess with Christy as much as it is like, oh, we have to make sure that we're considering the black girls too. Mm -hmm. Wow. Let me ask you um, this question that in chapter six, you talk about the parable of the angry brown girl, <clears throat> you speak of the sapphire image. Um, talk to us about that image and the right we really do have to be angry. Uh, I, every summer I, I've been teaching at this uh, it's a girls leadership academy called At The Well. Um, they have it, uh, it was virtual for during COVID and then we recently had at Princeton Seminary and I usually teach one, um, I'll, I'll show clips on YouTube of Sapphire and uh, my brain is fried right now. It's Sapphire, Jezebel, and Mammy, the three stereotypical mm. black women. And um, and so the I go into the history of the Sapphire image, I think coming from Amos and Andy and the character of Sapphire on that show back in the, the 50s and, um, and how that image has followed, right? It's been perpetuated by our own people mm -hmm. and it has followed black women. It is, I'm not the, you know, obviously first one under the sun. Uh, uh, Harris Perry writes about it extensively in Sister Citizen. So many black, black authors and black women have written about that. And now to see that our girls, you know, it, it just, it's generational, right? It just sort of continues. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I say, you know, that I try to say at least is number one, Black women have a right to be angry. Black girls have a right to be angry. Um, these girls, are, they have circumstances and situations that are unfortunate, but also, even if they didn't have it, Black women have a right to be angry just based right. off of mm -hmm. what we have to put up with mm -hmm. in society and what we've had to put up with for generations. Um, 
And so that's number one. And then number two, the way we communicate, because I talk about this in the voiceless brown girl too, right? This, this like attitude that they think, mm. the loudness that they think black people have, you know? And some of this is just the way we communicate. Yes. Um, and you've interpreted as this. Mm -hmm. I checked myself the last Monday, we have these uh, evening study halls the kids have on campus. And, and I had a study hall for, um, I won't even get one particular, there, there might be a LGBTQ, you know, study hall. There might be a black student study hall. There might be, a, you know, these are all affinity groups, mm -hmm. uh, Hispanic. And so there was one group, not, not a black, not the black group. And um, in the study hall, and they were loud. You're not allowed, you're not really supposed to be talking in study hall, but I let them talk a little bit. But they were loud, and every time I would say, "Can y'all bring it down, like just a few, a little bit?" They'd be like, "Okay, cool." And then they would think that they were bringing it down, but like still at the same volume. And I was like getting offended almost, right? Like, and then part of me was like, culturally, I, this was a group that I wasn't that familiar with. And I and I was thinking, could this be a cultural thing too that I'm just that's making me feel a little uncomfortable, um, even though you know they do need to bring it down. But um, I think there was an element there, and and then I and then I got it. It was a teachable moment for me, you know. So I would say, you know, aside from angry, there are some things that you know, the girls are when they're over and they're talking to each other and they're just in each other's face and whatever, whatever. That's the way they communicate. Mm -hmm. That's who they are. And we we do ourselves a disservice by perpetuating the, the, the same negative, mm -hmm. putting the same negative language on how they're communicating when it's just who they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's real good. It's, a, it's amazing that... Um, I know you don't care what them other folk of other hues think. Um, somehow we have got to educate them and be in their faces, mm -hmm. um, which is what I love about what you've shared, shared with us. You've not backed down. You've made sure that the black girls are taken care of in the same fashion as others. Cause it is so easy for the dominant culture mm -hmm. to overlook. Um, I'm in, I'm in a space right now where the, the black folk in this um, group don't trust sharing their stuff in an office where it's, they perceive that it can be heard what's mm -hmm. going on with them. Um, and the colonizers are saying, well, I did it in this way and da da da. So what that, that you did it? <laughs> so what if for me? Um, yeah. So I, I'm having to add, find ways to advocate for, for our people, whether they're girls or adults, mm -hmm. um, to have safe places um, where they can share. And, and the colonizers don't get it. They really don't get it. And if you um, you try to be diplomatic, um, but if I went off like they think I ought to go off, <laughs> um, then there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. you know? But that's why I say there are things that lead up to behaviors. Mm -hmm. The behavior didn't just happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were things that, that took place that that really people just say enough is enough and I ain't taking it no more. And yeah. I, I think when we were talking about um, Israel and Palestine, I think that's part of what happened with them. I, I it, it, And it's happening with our folk everywhere mm -hmm. um, in all areas. Uh, so we, we really have to not be, we need to deconstruct our internalized racism that, that's that's number one, um, and once we deconstruct that internalized racism uh, and hegemony and patriarchy, we can we can then advocate not only for ourselves but we can advocate for others. I believe. Wow, wow, well, thank you for that, Dr. Wallace. Um, uh, Reverend Adams, we only have about a good three <laughs> and a half minutes. Wow. Um, 
with you. Um, if, part two, uh, part, two, you, part two. <laughs> yes. um, um, if, if, what, what is it that you like for us to, to make sure that the viewer and audience hears and they take away um, from this writing um, of yours um, or, or, or anything, any nuggets that you would like to leave um, with us? Um, that, you know, I don't think that it, there should be one advocate for black girls. I think we all need to, you know, um, we, we all have to jump in the ring for them. You know, they're just being left out of conversations. They're being forgotten. They're having to share. Um, they're just consistently, black girls are consistently pushed to the margins. And, um, and it just, you know, I know how good it had felt when I was younger for people to step in on my behalf and intervene uh, or advocate for me, you know, in a world where they're just, where we often have to deal with stuff ourselves, Black women, period, Black girls having to, you know, come home from school and whatever they went through, they keep it to themselves and they get through it. We're resilient and all, you know, all these things that they have to be, you know, I don't know if enough black girls are, are used to um, people jumping in for them. And the last thing I'll share is I don't even know if I, I may have written about this in parable and girls were joking about um, this was before, you know, little mermaid or whatever. This is when we just had princess Tiana. Right. Yeah. And they were like, you know, why she she got to, you know, be the one to work hard and why, you know, like, you know, there were just certain things. And even though, you know, I, I obviously appreciate Princess and the Frog, right? Um, but the message that some of the black girls got, right, was that we're, you know, grateful that we have black princess and we, you know, we don't have to be saved, right? <laughs> but there is a, you know, even a message there, right? Mm -hmm that I gotta save my money and get my own place and do my own thing, you know, and 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 we we should, right? Um, but black girls need to know what it feels like to be taken care of, mm. you know? Yeah. To be like, no, we got it. Mm. No, I'll fight for you, you know? No, I'll speak up on your behalf. No, that wasn't right. No, you don't have to have the strength. You're strong, but you don't have to have the strength to endure yeah. that. Situation, I'm gonna walk through that with you. That's what I think at the end of the day, if there was a parable of the brown girl in the gospels, mm -hmm. that would be the, the, the culminating, you know, uh, part of the, of the gospel story would be Jesus saying, you know, yes, you are strong, right? Yes, you are resilient. Yes, you're all these things that I created you to be. Um, hey. You don't have to endure any of that. I got you. Mm -hmm lessons. Thank you so wow. much. Wow. Wow. Thank you so very much. Um, this has just been absolutely wonderful um, with you. And so, uh, we, we asked that you hang around backstage, of course, and Dr. Wallace, I think you, you would, you're about to say something. Oh, I, we got this like, you always say like, share and, and, and put in the chat that we need to have her back. <laughs> I, I, I am so excited that um, about the topic um, and, and about the activism uh, and advocacy that we do need to have have her back more than more than one two two more. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you, um, Reverend Adams. Hang around for us, please. Okay. <clears throat>